it's a privilege to know that uh, we are part of the heritage of the Reformation. The 31st of October marked the day when Martin Luther penned the 95 Theses on that church door in Wittenberg to begin what we refer to as the Reformation, probably the greatest revival that took place within the history of the church because it uh, influenced many as it flowed as God used the power of the word to accomplish his wonderful purposes. The theme words, solo gratia, solo scriptura, solo Christo, solo fideo, ring true even today as they did back in the 1500s and need to be heard even today as it was back in the 1500s because the church itself has fallen into uh, disrepair. God will always have us faithful, we know that. But uh, there are issues that that we have to address. As uh, we get ready to read the scripture, I want to share with you a little bit of a personal journey. The idea of solo gratias, solo gratia, grace and grace alone, and we understand the beauty of that. We can't save ourselves. It is only by grace God's riches at Christ's expense. We receive a gift we didn't deserve, unmerited favor. We cannot save ourselves. And yet if you're not careful, you slip into errors that, 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 that can ultimately create such great dilemmas that the church loses its significance. Loses its, uh, loses its significance. For example, if you emphasize grace outside of the context of sola scriptura, you can easily slip into, well, there's nothing that I have to do. I've received Jesus, I've experienced that grace, then there's nothing left. It's like we've accepted justification but forgotten about sanctification. Follow me? And one of the issues that you have with this is people, as they wrestle with what it means to be, to be saved, uh, don't have any concern about a distinctive lifestyle that comes out of being saved. And being accused of, example, being legalistic. If you speak in terms of things that are a result of grace. Does that make any sense? And so, in wrestling with probably one of the greatest portions of Scripture talking about grace, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, 1 through 10, where we're told that, that in our deadness, God, for whatever reason, chose to save us. For by grace we are saved through faith, and even that is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Paul goes on to say, we are Christ's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. In other words, please understand, we are saved by grace. 
But there is a response to grace that follows. And so as I wrestled with this, and I wrestled with James where he talks about faith without what is dead? Works. Okay? And I thought about John 14, 15 where Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I began to understand it and be reaffirmed, by the way, that grace obligates us to a certain lifestyle. And so in playing with that, and I guess this was the scary part, I decided that uh, I'm going to do another study in the Sermon on the Mount. And you guys get to be the first part of that study. Okay? Uh, it's our privilege to be reading the very Word of God. Brothers and sisters, it is inspired, it is inerrant, it is infallible. Please stand out of respect for the author of Scripture as we read, and I'm going to read the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the word. It is inspired. You have moved men by means of the Holy Spirit, dear Father, to write exactly what you wanted for us. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. Because it's our knowledge of Scripture, dear Father, that helps us to understand more and more of who you are and more and more of what you require of us. Lord, we commit this time to you. And we pray that in all that would be said and done, that you would be glorified. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now as, we, as I began to get into this journey, I opened probably the greatest work on the Sermon on the Mount, greatest human work on the Sermon on the Mount, which is a series of sermons by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And in his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, on the Sermon on the Mount, he made the statement, our ambition should be to be like Christ. The more like him, the better. And the more like him we become, the more we shall be unlike everyone who is not a Christian. So as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, you're looking at 
what a Christian is to be. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, contemporary preacher, has written a book on the Sermon on the Mount in which he calls kingdom life in a fallen world. And it describes and basically tells us how we're to live within this world. So keep that in mind as we get started here, as we get rolling. As we look at, look at chapter 5, the first thing we need to see, as Jesus saw these people coming to him, I want you to see how he responded. He didn't begin by performing miracles. He didn't begin by doing things that were healing type things or or providing food, whatever. He began by, and this is what what you need to look at, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. We need to be so careful that as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't fall into the trap of being so busy that we lose sight of what, the, what we're supposed to be doing. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and as members of the body of church, we're supposed to be feasting upon his word. We're supposed to become, we're supposed to growing in our knowledge of Scripture and our ability to live it out, our ability to apply it, rather than getting involved in things for their own sake. Yes, we do get involved in ministering with our community, but that's what Scripture wants us to do. That's what Jesus wants us to do. So it, it never becomes an end in itself. It's because of our response to Scripture. And it's imperative that believers, that members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, know the scripture so well that there's a sense in which it actually is a living out process. It's not just here, it's here and it's out here. And so it's important that the church have a solid teaching ministry, that that be a priority. If it isn't, Might as well join a social club. Because that's what you've got. We're here to feast upon the Word of God. And as we feast upon it, digest it so that it becomes part of who we are. A living out of the reality of God's Word. As Jesus begins this great sermon, remember this is a sermon addressed to how Christians are to be living their lives. Blessed are the pure in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we begin, we're going to start with the aspect of a kingdom and what that means. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, if you will. Book written by Paul to the church at Colossae, a church that he never had any personal contact with. But through Epaphras, whom Paul led to the Lord in in Ephesus, sent him down to Colossae to start this church. Paul begins, and we're going to be looking particularly at verses 12 through 14, 
Paul is talking here about this is my prayer for you. Okay? And, and he's talked about their bearing of fruit and he's talked about uh, them increasing in the knowledge of God and, and, and he's talked about them being strengthened and then he comes to the fourth participle and, and he says, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What we see here is Paul talking about these, uh, talking to these people to encourage them uh, to be a thankful people, no matter what the circumstances were, to be a thankful people. And the reason that they can be thankful, and be careful, because oftentimes, brothers and sisters, in the culture in which we live, which is so material, we only think of God's blessings in terms of what's happening in a positive way with our bank account or what's happening in terms of, uh, of uh, uh, these pleasurable activities. You see, uh, that's what we become thankful for. But that's the world. As believers, we're not governed by the world. As believers, we're governed by a sovereign God who describes the essence of that giving of thanks is the fact that He, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In other words, the basis of our, the basis of our thanksgiving is the fact that He has made us His. That he qualified us. He didn't lower the standard, but he brought us up to it. He qualified us. Of course, we know that's through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because our sin was laid upon him as he died that death for us to pay for our sins. To cover us in his blood. So that when the Lord looks at us because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, He sees us as righteous because our sins have been taken away as far as the east is from the west. This is, now this is like a pop test. You can take a teacher out of the classroom, but you can't take a classroom out of the teacher. So guess, I'm not going to give you a test, but just keep it in mind. Now, I've mentioned this to you before. What's the big deal about east to west? You go north on a globe. Now remember, this is David painting a picture in Psalm 103. You go north on a globe, ultimately what's going to happen? You're going to start going south. So hypothetically, north and south do meet. Okay? But David says, because of the blood of Jesus, sin washed away as far as east is from the west. You start going east on a globe, hypothetically what? You never meet west. You see, David's painting this beautiful picture in terms of what God has done with our sin. He qualified us. He brought us up to that standard. Paul goes on to say, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. And that's a military term. Anybody who's been in the military knows about that. Military says you move, you what? You move. God took us out of, he moved us out of this domain of darkness and transferred us. 
Now notice the phraseology, brothers and sisters. He moved us to the kingdom of his beloved son, which means the kingdom exists right here and right now. When John the Baptist saw Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, Matthew chapter 3, what did John say? Behold, the kingdom is at hand. Why was the kingdom at hand? Because the king was present. The king had arrived. This was foretold throughout Scripture. Genesis 49, verse 8. The twelve sons are being discussed here. Usually in Jewish tradition, the first son was the one who was given all the honor. And yet Jacob, in his discussion, Genesis 49, talks about Judah. Your brothers will praise you. They'll bow down to you. You'll have the scepter. You'll have the ruler's staff. Second Samuel chapter 7. You remember the picture that uh, David wanted to build the temple. And so he tells Nathan that this is what I want to do. Nathan's the prophet and he goes back and he gets a message from God and says, No, uh, you're not going to build that temple. Someone else will. And this is within the context of this we have in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. And just bear with me as I read. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, and, and, and verse, 15, verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is a messianic prophecy. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you would have an immediate fulfillment, which points us to the ultimate fulfillment. Now obviously, as we think about Nathan's mention or his message to David at this particular point in time, the immediate fulfillment is going to be whom? It's going to be Solomon. But the ultimate fulfillment in terms of throne and kingdom forever is whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. See, Solomon was a type. Those were items in the Old Testament that pointed forward to their fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You find the same thing in, in Isaiah chapter 9 in terms of the description, the, 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 the prophecy in terms of a light shining in the midst of darkness. And it talks about a child that will be born. And that child will establish a kingdom. Of the increase of his government in peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth 
and forever. These are the scriptures that John had in his mind when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And says, the kingdom is at hand. In other words, it is present. Jesus Christ in Matthew 28 portion of scripture we refer to as the great commission he's commanding his disciples to go out and he says all authority Matthew 28 all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth go the king has commanded his troops to go Pilate and and Talking to Jesus. So you're, you say you're a king. I don't see your kingdom. Well keep in mind. Pilate represented Rome. In his mind there were territories. There were boundaries. There was power. That was laid upon others. Jesus' response. My kingdom is not of this world. What in the world is Jesus Christ talking about? He's talking about a spiritual kingdom in which we become members of when we come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a kingdom that's bound by territories and borders. It's not a kingdom that's influenced by spears and power. It's a kingdom that's influenced by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's a kingdom that transcends all cultures. All generations, a kingdom made up of all of those who've come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even before he came, to whatever day he comes again. It's a kingdom that transcends language, cultural practices. It's a kingdom made up of anybody who comes to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wish that the, that the church of Jesus Christ handled the whole thing of racism much better. When you think about the creation work of God in Genesis 1 and 2, He made mankind. I have the privilege of teaching history, dual credit history, which means these kids are supposed to receive college credit if they pass the course in uh, we just recently talked about Roger Tanney's decision in the Dred Scott case. Remember that? They are nothing more than property to be traded and sold or whatever. Nothing but property. It's a human being. When you look at the church of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, brothers and sisters, you see a multicultural, multicolored group of people who are bound together by the common denominator of loving Jesus Christ more than anything else in the world. That's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the kingdom that Jesus is talking about here as he talks to these people, as he seeks to encourage them, as he seeks to, 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 to prepare them for what's in store.
poor in spirit. To be a part of that kingdom, brothers and sisters, we're confronted with the reality that as human beings we are spiritually bankrupt. The word poor itself means an emptying, emptied of all pride and all self-sufficiency, all self-assurance and all self-reliance. Outside of Jesus Christ, I am nothing. I am doomed because there's no way that I can earn my way to heaven. No way that I am so good that God's going to save me. We're spiritually bankrupt. Isaiah, John, when they're caught up into the very presence of God, fall on their face when they're confronted with God's holiness because they are spiritually bankrupt. They recognize that their salvation is in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Romans chapter 7, as Paul's talking about the challenges of being a believer. Please understand, when, when, when Paul wrote the book of Romans, okay, he'd been in the Lord 30-some years. If, if he was converted shortly after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, 34, 30, 33, 34 A.D., a, a book of Romans is written approximately 64, 65. He'd been in the Lord for 30 years. Think about the things that he accomplished. Probably the greatest preacher ever, the greatest missionary ever, greatest church planner ever. I mean, this guy was obviously especially equipped by God to play a major role in the planting of the church. And obviously in guiding the church as well, because the majority of the New Testament is written by Paul. And yet Paul was also flesh and blood. And he writes in Romans 7 as he wrestles with, now please keep in mind when he wrote it, he didn't put, okay, this is chapter 7, guys. It's just a letter. And he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. A believer struggling with indwelling sin. Why? Because even as a believer, I can't make God do anything for me because I'm good. We still struggle, and we will until the day that the Lord takes us home. Thus Paul says, and this is the worst thing he could possibly think of, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from the bondage of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then we close our Bibles because we've read our chapter for the day. And once you've done that, you've... you've Close the Bible on one of the greatest promises that we have. We can't save ourselves. We aren't self-reliant. We aren't self-sufficient. Paul writes, here again I'm going to use the very thing I detest, chapter 8, verse 1. Paul writes, there is now therefore, what? No condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. As a citizen of that kingdom. Citizen of Christ's kingdom. 
We are there because of the finished work that He has done. He accomplished our salvation. Nothing I can add to it. And even in the struggles that we have as we go on within this kingdom, living out our faith in the midst of this kingdom and struggle, we know it's the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that has saved us. Oh, the great hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. In other words, I have nothing to offer. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We're members of a great kingdom, brothers and sisters, because of what the King has accomplished for us. And the rest of that sermon, Sermon on the Mount, tells us what, we're, what we are to do as we live out the reality of what it means to love Jesus with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our minds. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for what you have done through the Lord Jesus Christ. We do thank you that you have made us part of your kingdom. Oh, and we get to serve a great king. A king who loves us. A king whom we can love. And as we live our lives out, as we experience grace and all oh, the beauty of grace, as we experience that. Oh, Father. May our lives be a living manifestation of what He wants us to be. We will be lights in the midst of darkness. Use us, Father, that people would desire to know Jesus. Not for any credit for us, but because... We love our Master, and we're seeking to exalt His name. And it's in His glorious name that we pray. Amen.